Good morning, everyone. Probably been wondering what on earth is the rocking chair for. You were probably assuming Miss Joanne was going to use it working with the kids, and then no. So you're like, what on earth is this rocking chair for? You'll find out. For now, just assume I'm feeling a little lazy after Thanksgiving and thought I would sit and rock for a little bit as we read our scripture reading. But today, as, as Miss Joanne said, we begin the season of Advent. And uh, this year for, for Advent, for worship, and for Sunday school, we're using a wonderful resource uh, from a, a worship uh, and liturgy group called the Sanctified Art. And um, this series is called From Generation to Generation, where we're really focusing on the story of who we are as followers of Jesus, how the story that we have has been passed to us from our parents and so on, going all the way back to Jesus. But as we'll see today, as we read the genealogy of Jesus, we'll see that this is the story of Jesus is part of God's greater story, that Jesus might be the culmination of it, but is also very much part of everything God has been up to so far. Now, as I said, we're beginning with the genealogy, so all the begats. Now, we tend to gloss over these and maybe get a little bored, and all of our liturgists will be saying very loudly, thanks be to God, because they don't have to read all these really long names that I'll be reading with you in a minute here. Uh, but trust me, these names, these people matter. Their stories matter. And that's what we'll be exploring today, friends. So I invite you to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil. Sheatil was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. 
Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eliatzer. Eliatzer was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm saying thanks be to God for getting through all those names <laughs> as well. Well, friends, a number of years ago, a professor in a lecture to his New Testament students asked his, his uh, seminary students, what sounds do each of the four Gospels make as they begin? What do they sound like as they begin the story of Jesus? How do they begin? Do they begin with music? They begin with a bang, with a whimper? Facing a room of perplexed students, this professor explained that Mark, the earliest gospel, begins with the drum beat. Can you hear it? As he rhythmically and emphatically begins the good news of Jesus. It's a beat that's going. Can you hear it? Bah, bah, bah. But it's a beat that's in a hurry. It's in such a hurry that there's no time for a birth story. This Jesus is here and is on the move to bring about God's kingdom on earth. Luke's gospel sounds like a booming angelic choir full with a large supporting orchestra, much like I assume our sanctuary will sound like on December 18th as our, as our choir uh, will, will lead us in worship for our festival Sunday. Luke's gospel begins like this to show that it is a time to sing glory to God in the highest as God's Son is met on earth with joy and with wonder. John's gospel, as you might imagine, sounds cosmic and otherworldly as the poetry of God's own word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The professor explained all these three and says there's one more. Matthew. What does Matthew's gospel sound like? As you can imagine, all the students were perplexed, like I imagine all of us now are. What on earth does a genealogy sound like? The professor calmly explained that Matthew sounds like this. Our floors aren't creaky enough. <laughs> Matthew's gospel sounds like a rocking chair, gently creaking on the wood floor of an old porch as a grandparent tells their progeny the story of their family. Can you hear it? You know, when I was a boy, your great-grandfather used to take me fishing on the creek through that mountain pass over there. Or, oh, your Aunt Louise used to make the best um, mac and cheese. Can you hear it? The beginning of Matthew's gospel sounds like the sharing of one's family story. How beautiful it is that 
this time of year when we often gather around table with family and friends to share stories and memories together as a family. I'm thinking of that today particularly because I'm wearing my family tartan tie as a memory of, of part of where my story comes from, uh, from my, my Scottish ancestors. But of course we know that this isn't everyone's experience this time of year. This time of year when so many are gathered with family and friends and loved ones is also a time of year when loneliness and isolation and grief feel especially bitter and strong. I'm going to go back to where I'm more comfortable. You know, it's for these reasons, friend, that I think it's particularly beautiful and powerful that Matthew begins his story of Jesus by telling us where he came from. In Jesus, God wasn't doing something new and different. Rather, the coming of Christ is deeply connected to the greater story of God's love and redemption throughout covenant history. Matthew begins all this way back with Abraham through David and all the way to his father Joseph. If you think about it, this genealogy feels just a little bit like the film Forrest Gump, in which a man finds himself somehow part of every major cultural event in our nation over the course of the past four or five decades. In telling us Jesus' family tree, Matthew finds a way to connect Jesus to every major movement of God's story so far. The birth of Jesus may begin a new chapter of God's story, but it's also a chapter that's inseparably related to everything that has come before it. This week I was led to a TED Talk that was given a number of years ago by a geneticist named Spencer Wells whose genographic project seeks to show how our DNA as humans carries within it a picture of a sort of larger family tree. And it's one that seeks to show that despite the wonderful diversity that we see within our human species, all of us are also connected to each other. Wells' work shows that our stories, but also our very selves, are actually deeply rooted in one another. And our DNA actually is the code which shows this connection. I think Matthew's genealogy here tries to do something similar in telling us the story of Jesus. He tries to show how Jesus is part of, while also the culmination of, every part of God's story. Just as Jesus is connected to everything God has been up to so far, Jesus also connects us, each of us, to every part and every person within God's story. After all, as John will tell us, it's through Christ that we are adopted as brothers and sisters, as children of God. So we're not only allowed to witness God's story unfold in the lead up to Jesus' birth, no, We're also invited along. We're invited to participate, to bring our very selves and our own story to weave into this mosaic of God's story taking shape here among us. In the coming of Jesus, God's own word made flesh. What we see 
is that there is room for every person and, and their story in God's unfolding story of love and redemption. As we come into this wonderful season, I'm also reminded of all the beloved Christmas movies that I'm looking forward to watching again. Marie and I even have a schedule uh, to, to make sure we get through all of them. But for me, Christmas Vacation is always on the top of the list, which of course means getting to see the beloved yet rough around the edges Cousin Eddie driving up again in his rusted out Winnebago. There's a reason Cousin Eddie has become so iconic over the years and has played such a large role in canonizing Christmas Vacation amongst the most beloved Christmas films. While he's certainly a caricature or an exaggeration, all of us have a Cousin Eddie or two in our family tree, right? Some of us might be wondering if we're the Cousin Eddie in our family. You know, a relative who may not always say the right thing, but who, as Clark Griswold will so aptly put it, has a heart bigger than his brain. I'm reminded of Cousin Eddie for a couple of reasons as we reflect on Matthew's genealogy. It's not necessarily because there's a no-brainer Cousin Eddie in the mix uh, in, in Jesus' family tree, but there could be a couple of contenders. We don't have time to go into that. Rather, I'm reminded of Cousin Eddie because in the sharing of, of Jesus' family story, Matthew doesn't provide us with an Instagram-filtered, carefully cropped and polished family portrait. Instead, it's a picture that's a little rough around the edges. It's a genealogy that would be deemed at best unorthodox. For instance, Matthew includes women in his genealogy, something that was never done back then, and Matthew doesn't name one woman, he names five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who's mentioned but not named, and of course, Mary. So at best, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus would be deemed unorthodox, but at worst, his genealogy might even be deemed flat-out scandalous. Usually back then and now, when people speak of their family lineage, they share the bright spots. You know, the war hero uncle, the first person to go to college, the distant relative who risked it all to come to America, and so on. Cousin Eddie, or anyone whose story was the least bit embarrassing, or off-putting, or controversial, would be conveniently left out, right? Most of our stories are more complex than we realize or perhaps than we'd like to admit, right? But I'm pretty sure Ancestry.com or any of those genealogy services would quickly go out of business if they went that route. Yet Matthew doesn't skip over any of this. If anything, Matthew goes out of his way to point out the scandal and controversy within Jesus' family tree. We don't have time to go over all the people identified, but I want us to take one example. Jesus' connection to Solomon. We might expect Matthew to share Jesus' family link to the wise King Solomon through his father, the often celebrated King David, though he too is a complicated figure. But no. Matthew goes out of his way to say that David is Solomon's father through the widow of Uriah. 
Again, Bathsheba is mentioned, but not named. And how did Uriah die? David sent him to the front lines of battle to die so that he could marry Bathsheba. Now, when you think about it, this kind of scandal is actually quite fitting for Matthew's gospel. As the circumstances of Jesus' own conception and birth are deemed scandalous. Remember, Joseph plans to dismiss Mary quietly to avoid the scandal of a child born outside of marriage until the angel tells him to do otherwise. You know, there's something profound here, though, as Matthew shares Jesus' family tree. In it, Matthew shares everything, the good and the bad alike. As I said earlier, we can't go in-depth on each person's story in the genealogy, but if you look back and read their stories, which I implore you to do this Advent, what you'll find is both joy and trauma. You'll experience triumph and failure. You'll witness faithfulness and forgetfulness. All these feelings, experiences, and emotions come together in the story of Jesus. So what does that mean? It means that despite what our culture has come to understand, this season is about seeing the world, ourselves, and our stories as they really are. Not the Instagram-filtered, carefully curated perfection of ugly sweater photos we like to believe. Rather, God and Jesus comes into the world as it really is. Messiness, heartache, and all. God comes into the world as it really is in order that it might be redeemed through the Christ child. So what this means for all of us, friends, is that we are invited into this messy story of God, this messy story of Jesus, just as we are. Whether we're approaching the season with joy or sorrow, hope or worry, family or loneliness, wherever you find yourself as you begin this Advent, you're invited into our Lord's story. There's room for you and there's room for your story. There's room for your joy, there's room for your sorrows, there's room for your worries. There's room for your stories on the mountaintops and valleys of life alike. There's room for you to participate in and become part of the story of God's redemption of our broken and hurting world. So friends, with this invitation, let us journey again to Bethlehem just as we are. Let us Go together knowing full well that there is room for you, there's room for me, and there's room for all of our stories. Glory be to God in the highest, and peace on earth to all.